There is no other podcast like this, so proceed with caution as we challenge your beliefs by providing the forbidden information kept away from you and your family by modern medicine so they can keep you on the path of drugs for anything and drugs for everything. Hundreds of years of preventative medicine have been destroyed by Big Pharma. We're in the dark ages of true healing. After all, it's not just about living long, it's about living well. If your continuing search for answers has led you nowhere, you will find the truth here on the Forbidden Doctor Podcast. Now prepare to have your consciousness explode into the next evolutionary stage of human existence with your hosts, Dr. Jack and Mary Stockwell. Stockwell. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Jack. And Mary. And we are here for podcast number 67, Just What Is... Cancer. Ooh. Yeah, we've we've uh, we've discussed this subject many times over the podcast, but I don't know that we've really gotten down to the point of the modern day understanding of what cancer is, because the prevailing theory for decades is now rapidly being discarded. It has been discarded. It has been, yes. So we at the Forbidden Doctor are going to give that to you, but first, here's our weekly feature. Forbidden secrets they don't want you to know. Yes. Secret things. I like this feature. I do too. Secret things they keep from you, the dumb things they tell you, and the really important things they know nothing about. Yeah, I love that last one. (laughs) And this one is Newsflash from JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, has come out with a new study, and we will include the link here. The baby rice cereal you've been giving your babies to start them on solid food has arsenic in it. Shh. Now, we explained this, um, how poisonous grains can be in our number 60 podcast called Grains, Celiac Disease, and Leaky Gut. Especially for infants. Mm -hmm. So I'll just put that in and explain the article. But here's the secret stuff that they're not going to tell you. It It starts out with concentrations of arsenic were twice as high in the urine of infants who ate white or brown rice than those who ate no rice. Arsenic is a known carcinogen that can influence risks of cardiovascular, immune, and other diseases. Even low levels of arsenic exposure can impact a baby's neurodevelopment. Certainly. A 2004 study looked at children in Bangladesh who were exposed to arsenic in drinking water, and it found that they, had, they scored significantly lower on intellectual tests. And um, if you think it's only imported rice, think twice. U.S. grown rice has some of the highest reported arsenic concentrations in the world. And in this case, brown and wild rice are the worst offenders because the bleaching process used to create white rice removes the outer hole where much of the arsenic concentrates. Arsenic concentrates in the outer hull. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where all the vitamins are. That's yes. where all the B vitamins are. Yeah, well, that's why mothers don't want their babies eaten. They put arsenic. Yeah, they put arsenic in there so you won't eat their acid, little rice, as we talked rice about. babies. Yeah. Okay, so... Now, you know, arsenic is essential to life. Yes, I know we have to have it, but There's in the proper balance. There's minuscule amount. Yes, there are some... Uh, biochemical processes that happen inside the body that require the presence of arsenic, but very, very little. And also look for products that have brown rice syrup in it as a sweetener in organic foods because we think, oh, what's wrong with brown rice syrup? Well, organic milk, in one organic milk formula marketed to toddlers, had levels of inorganic arsenic that were six times the levels currently considered safe by U.S. Well, that's not raw milk. Oh, no, no. This is a sweetener found in okay. uh, these organic milk formulas that they put out on the market, you know, on those boxes and stuff. Yes. Yeah. 
So here's the, here's <laughs> the stuff the doctors know nothing about. This pediatrician named Tanya Altman, and she is the author of a book called What to Feed Your Baby. A well, pe- I was just getting ready to ask, if we can't give them cereal in the first year of life, what are we going to give them? <laughs> this book is called A Pediatrician's Guide to the 11 Essential Foods to Guarantee Veggie-Loving, No-Fuss, Healthy-Eating Kids. Okay. Okay. Big pause there because we know you can't grow a brain on vegetables. That's right. If you've been listening to our podcast for any and any length of that? time, because the dry weight of the brain is sixty-five to seventy percent fat. Yeah. And not here, vegetable. Yeah. We we did a huge podcast on this, and, yes. and the one I just mentioned. So you can go back and listen to that if you want. She says this pediatrician says the best first foods for infants are. Take a guess. Donuts. <laughs> no. Well, they'll eat donuts. No, 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 no. Not from a pediatrician. You're oh, being oh. rude now. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Vaccines. What? Food? Oh, food. No, the best first food. Come on. Keep up with me. Um, I know what the answer is. I'm just trying to bait it out of you. <laughs> oh, it's just vegetables. Liver. You know that. No, no. Oh, my goodness. Let's start over here. Uh This pediatrician, I know you're excited about the podcast to come. So the pediatrician, what do you think her best recommendations were? Vegetables. Yes. She says avocados, pureed vegetables, peanut butter, oatmeal, but she does say salmon next. Well, that's good. And that's wonderful. But then she says, she goes on, here it is. She recommends berries, steamed or cooked vegetables, that's good. At least they're cooked, not raw. Peanut puffs. I don't know what those are. Greek yogurt. String cheese. That's okay. A thin, except for it's a soft cheese, not very nutritious. A thin layer of nut butter on whole grain bread. A thin layer of nut butter. In other words, don't get fat in that baby. Then she does say hard-boiled or scrambled eggs. That's good. At least she gets some eggs in there. Then she says, get this, whole grain, O-shaped cereal and pieces of lean chicken. A whole well, grain well, O-shaped cereal, like Cheerios. She can't say Cheerios. A whole grain oh. O-shaped cereal. <laughs> they come from a Cheerios bush. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, you know, that vegetables would be where better. Do, where do Cheerios this. come from? <laughs> Cheerios tree. Whole grain from oats and barley. You know, all those. I've things. looked at a lot of oats and barley. I've never seen them make an O. So. <laughs> So as we go back to our weekly feature, the dumb things I tell you and the really important things I know nothing about. So really important things are the first solid foods your baby eats. And on Podcast 60, we gave out three handouts. The foods your baby should go to from the breast are liver, egg yolks, broth, fish, yogurt, kefir, cheeses, and in other words, what we've been saying all along, meat, eggs, fish, and raw and fermented dairy. So you give the baby a fork and a knife and a plate of liver? How do you feed a baby we liver? We have recipes. We have liver recipes, handouts. We have Dr. Pottinger's liver recipes for babies. And then we also have an infant-to-toddler bottle formula recipe. So We're providing all that information. It's in Podcast 60. We've already right, provided it. it's in Podcast it. 60. Yeah. So the baby should start out on liver. Yes. Now, why liver? The, it has the most nutritious, it has everything in it, from zinc to calcium to everything a child needs. And may I suggest it comes from 
a clean animal. Yes, we talk about that in Podcast 60. Not a commercially supplied liver, but from a grass-pastured animal. Yeah, that's in the handout. It talks about how to spot a good liver. But basically, too, you have to realize that livers are self-cleaning, so you don't have to be completely freaked out about it. But, of course, get as much as you can, the best meat you can afford. Yes. Um, Dr. McBride, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, we talk about ad nauseum on this podcast, says she has very, very poor people that do her GAPS program, and they can't afford the organic meats. and the f- Right. And they go get pigeons, literally. And Pigeon they, And make soup out of it. Yeah. And they're, they're fine. They yeah. grow on this. All right. I... I I apologize. Okay, so now we're going to get on to what you want to talk about. Just what is cancer? And Jack, take well, it away. Well, before I get to that, I want to introduce this commercial break. No, this isn't a commercial. This is cool. Bright flash of light marks incredible moment life begins. I just ran across this on the internet the other day, and this is this is I don't know what to say. Stunning. It's mm-hmm. stunning for me. That human life begins in a bright flash of light as the sperm meets the egg. So this is a new story. This is a, Yeah, this is a new story. It's dated, it's in Science Editor by Sarah Napton, 26 April 2016. So this is a relatively new article. And I will quote from it very briefly. An explosion of tiny sparks erupts from the egg at the exact moment of conception. Scientists have seen this phenomenon occur in other animals, but it is the first time it has also been seen to happen in humans. Now, we're going to uh, attach a URL for this, right? Yes, I, yeah. I've already so got So people that. can see this for... Because it's a little I, video that shows... Just incredible. When, an, when a sperm conception, I, goes inside of an egg, yes. a flash of light yeah. appears. Yeah. It's so beautiful. This flash of energy. Yes. Now, you remember back in eighth grade biology when you first were being taught a little bit about human uh, reproduction, and of course all the kids were worried, were more interested in the equipment yeah. than the actual, <laughs> you know, chemical processes. And the snickering, yeah. Yeah, those little, oh, he said sperm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh I think I was quoting myself back there in eighth grade for a moment. Anyway, uh, when we see pictures of these in the books, the point I was trying to get to, when we see pictures of these in the books, we're just seeing a flat two-dimensional image. But remember, cells are like water balloons, mm-hmm. and they have a spherical or you orbital or elongated or a twisted, contorted, torsioned structure to it that has three dimensions, not two dimensions. Mm-hmm. And the ovum, the egg, is, is spherical, like the Earth. Mm-hmm. And... When it is in the outer third of the fallopian tube, this is where it is met by the sperm cells. And it's not just, you know, kind of like e-harmony and, you you know, well, I think we're going to go to lunch. He, he's kind of cute and, well, she's smart. I like that. No, this egg is surrounded by thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of sperm cells. And they're all trying to get into the egg. They're all genetically designed to get through the wall of that egg. They don't agglomerate around uterine tissue. They don't agglomerate around vaginal tissue. They don't go bursting out the ends of the fallopian tube and dropping off into infinitude. They find that egg, and then they swarm around it like you just stuck a stick in a hornet's nest. What happens to you? Which one is she going to pick? She has hundreds of thousands of suitors at this moment. The warrior. The strong one, the one that gets through. Well, I was thinking it was the, the one alpha with, male, the one with the money. 
Well, yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> She'll let that one in. Yes. She doesn't have to work. So she is surrounded, swarming of these little tiny things that are the smallest cell in the human body is swarming around the largest cell in the human body. And one of them she, she picks. And the reason that the sperm cell can get through the wall, the outer wall of the ovum, the egg, is because they're made of exactly the same material, a hyaluronic acid-based material that she, the, the ovum, recognizes as self. But only one of them she picks. So when he finally gets through the outer wall, boom, the calcium load inside of her, her body itself builds to where zinc is released, and the fluorescence of that release of zinc from the wall of the ovum is what causes that spark of light that they're catching under cameras. Yeah. Now, this has great application for in vitro fertilization because with, I think, the current rate here in the state of Utah is one in six couples are infertile, so they go to in vitro fertilization. Yeah, they don't eat liver, so they don't have any zinc. To make that spark of life. Well, very, very good point. Yeah, let's very just, good point. Let's just trickle the, down and this nutrition. the growing nutrition. number of men who are sterile is amazing. Extremely low sperm count, extremely lazy sperm cells. That even though they're there, they don't want to do anything. Mm -hmm. So when they do in vitro, they they harvest several eggs from the ovary, and they put these. There's a special dish that in vitro takes place, and they can separate each one of these eggs into yeah. a different compartment, and they are exposed to human sperm. Mm. preferably the father. And now they can capture, well, you can go to a sperm donor if you're not married, that kind of a thing. Okay. What does From this a, have to do with the story? The, well, <laughs> some of them are good and some of them okay. aren't. <laughs> okay. So what happens now, short of this discovery, mm -hmm. is that any egg that fertilized, they will implant that in the uterus. Now they can see maybe up to nine, 12 of these at one time, and they look at the amount of light yeah. the that zinc. that fertilized egg gave off at the time it accepted the sperm cell. Ping. Some, yeah, very good. In fact, that's it. I think that's what it sounds like. The human ping. Oh, did that, did that video have a sound to the it? The human ping. <laughs> ping. So, ping. They so they pick the brightest one. Ping, they ping, put off the... Ping, the ping, <laughs> ping. Right. Oh, that's a... Yeah, yeah, well, you're right. So they put the... They, they, pick, take, they pick the brightest one or two and implant them. So, you know... You got a better chance a of better having... Ch a better chance of a healthier baby. Yeah, yeah, or at least yeah. that's the theory so yeah. far. So I thought this was really cool. Now, there is a video that shows this. In, in the um, article itself, so we'll be including a URL where people can actually see the bright flash that takes place. It's pretty cool. And this is, it is. It's so Okay, cool. so why are we talking about well, we're talking babies, about this. first foods, and, and how important it is for them, you to start them out on liver and egg yolks and things like this instead of rice cereal. And then we talk about the spark of life and how brilliant and complicated this is. It's just a miracle that this happens, and you get a full-functioning body in nine months, let alone with an egg, a full-functioning nervous system, and a little chick in, what, 28 days? Yes, yeah. an egg after the fertilization. The power behind an egg is phenomenal, and that's why it's such good nutrition for us. So the, what is the power behind us making new liver cells and new kidney cells and new brain cells and new skin cells? Well, that's, that is what we're going to talk about here in the just what is cancer, because there's a very strong link between that 
and cancer. Yeah. Now, I was in histology, which is the study of tissues, uh, in my professional training uh, almost 25 years ago. Yeah, when you were in school. And we, when yeah. I was in school, and we studied various tissue types, healthy tissue and disease tissue. And we also studied cancer. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on it because we're not oncologists. But we were taught the prevailing theory at the time, which is also was taught in medical schools and is to some degree still kicked around in, in the literature today, and that is that the idea of cancer are these mature cells that just go nuts. These mature, worn out... That should be dying. Should be apoptosis. You call it apoptosis, but, you know, you're from the East, so... You're a little, you know, you have this little, you say potatoes, you know, yeah. tomatoes. But anyway, apoptosis, the natural death of a cell, the programmed death the of program a cell. The programmed death of a cell. So these are cells that are matured. They've been, you know, like a red blood cell is about 120 days, and it starts to, it needs to be replaced. Yes, but, of course, red blood cells don't have cancer. Right. They're not... They're not. The they white. have no DNA. In fact, right. They're they're it's made. It's the white blood cells that it's causes the white the blood ce- leukemia. Leukemia is the white blood cell that just got a little hungry for its little sister, the red blood cell. So what, so what were you taught? We were taught the same thing they teach in medical school: that the idea that these dead, dying cells just go nuts at the last second, and they don't just you know go softly into that dark night. <laughs> But they rage, rage against the dying of the light. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) So they go nuts. They go crazy, and they start growing at rapid rate and multiplying like crazy. That is so ridiculous. Well, why? Because if you take it to its logical conclusion, and if I had been in that classroom, I would have raised my hand and said, you know what? If this theory is true, we have discovered the cure for aging. If these old mature cells can go back to their undifferentiated state, they can go back to, they can get young again and be this massive embryonic tissue with tons of energy in it, like a little child has just so much energy to grow and grow and grow and then eat up healthy tissue. Then we have found the cure for aging. Yeah, we just take all of our cells and make them young and vibrant yeah, again. Yeah, I mean, just follow that programming of these crazy cells that die or are supposed to die have great growth potential. Yes. So that's not what medical science believes anymore. No. So this, is, this was with the discovery uh, several decades ago of the stem cell. But the last two decades the stem cell has become very prominent in the understanding of cancer. Now, stem cells, and, and usually when we hear about stem cells, it's re, they're usually talking about bone marrow. You're but, right. But stem cells are throughout the entire body. And stem cells are incredibly small, undifferentiated cells. Young. Very young, undifferentiated which means they don't look any different from the rest. They look exactly the same. Yeah, so you can't tell a stem cell from a liver, a liver stem cell from a kidney stem cell. No, they look exactly the same. Right. And it's only when that stem cell starts to develop into the tissue cell where it's located, it's the local growth factors, what are known as the protomorphogens, Mm -hmm. the local growth factors that tell that stem cell, you are now a kidney cell. You know, it's like the NFL draft that's been going on lately. You are now a Bronco. You <laughs> but he could have been are with, now a Patriot. No, it's not, no, it's not that. Is you're a linebacker or you're a wide receiver. No, you're going to be a wide receiver on this team, not 
a quarterback, but a wide receiver. Right. Well, that's what happens with stem cells inside the body. Now, stem cells were discovered a long, 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 long yeah. time ago. Back in the back before the last century, back in the nineteenth century, by Dr. James Beard. Well, they were discovered before that, but Dr. James Beard brought them into. Um, well, he noticed the, that in the development, and this is the connection with baby and conception. Cells, he didn't call them stem, stem cells. He called them migrating vagrant cells or something like that. Fermenting. Yeah. Fermenting. Was that, I, I could look it up did for you, you. Could, could you look it up? <laughs> anyway, um, vagrant trophoblast. Vagrant trophoblast. Yeah. Oh. Now the trophoblast. Well, you were right. Yeah, the trophoblast. Let me explain that really quick. Because when the egg and the sperm meet, mm-hmm. then you get cell division. And it doesn't go 2, 4, you know, 8, 16, 32. There's a really odd thing that takes place at the very beginning. Within, a, within the first week where the egg and the sperm meet, as one cell, it, it's now up over 100 cells, and it's called a trophoblast. And this trophoblast is what implants itself into the uterine wall. And we talk about this a lot in the podcast on um, 97, the, the cure for 97% of all cancers. We also talk about it in the, previous, or the recent one, uh, How to Tell if Cancer Has Started in You. And we get into this, and just by way of review a little bit, um, what happens with this trophoblast, once it falls out of the fallopian tube into the posterior wall of the uterus, preferably... It starts producing enzymes that eat through the wall of the uterus and releases enzymes. They're called uh, uh, matrix matrix metalloproteinases. Mm-hmm. Proteinases, in other words, they slice up protein, A's. the protein wall. Protein A's and, cuts up. And it, it cuts through the wall of the uterus. It releases hormones itself that trigger something called angiogenesis, the formation of blood vessels. Mm-hmm. Because it's looking for its own blood supply, and it and it, it ends up penetrating. Because the egg only has enough food for a couple of days. Not very long. Yeah. And it's got to get food quick or it will die, and its food is going to be the mother's blood supply. Now, interestingly enough, when the egg, fertilized egg, puts out this hormonal contact chemical messenger system, the uterus, already triggered by the, the changing levels of luteinizing hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormone, LH and FSH, is sitting there waiting for it. It's like the, the catcher there waiting for the pitch from the pitcher. And so it, the, the uterus puts out these tiny little hair-like things called pinopods. And as soon as the egg hits one of those things, the uterus says, come on, baby, <laughs> the soup is on. And it starts providing for this embryo that's, that's saying, mama, mama. And the uterine wall is saying, baby, baby. And they come together hormonally, chemically for this magical dance so that that trophoblast can invade the wall of the uterus using these metalloproteinases, uh, enzymes, to build its own blood supply. Now, at this point, as soon as it gets a blood supply, it goes through an extremely rapid growth. Yeah. As has been said by anatomists before, 90% of all your growth as a human being happens before you're born. Yeah. From the time you're a baby to growing to adult, that's the last 10% of your growth. The first 90% is inside the uterus. I don't know, though. Rourke grew a whole foot in one, <laughs> I guess, a few months. So. <laughs> yeah, he did. 
But that fertilized egg is only the size of a period at the end of a sentence. And that, thing, and that thing is going to, and it needs a, a, a blood supply, oxygen supply to do that. It's got to eat. Now, that, now, what Dr. James Beard discovered back in the 1980s, he was an embryologist. 1980s, you mean Excuse 18, me, 1890s. 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 It was when he, he started publishing about it. Prior to that, he had made some discoveries that the cancer cell acts exactly the same way. You have these stem cells. Now, a stem cell, imagine you and I have been to the redwood forest in California. Mm -hmm. These massive, massive giants. Mm -hmm. But there's these little redwood trees growing all around them that aren't even as tall as we are. You can see in their makeup and their design that nature's going to take care of this 2,000-year-old structure by creating another one next to it. That's what the stem cells are like that. The stem cells are all throughout our entire body. The reason that we harvest stem cells from the marrow of a long bone, which I understand is an extremely painful operation, but to get stem cells out out of there, they're they're very concentrated, and you don't disrupt the health of the bone that much. You will if you take the marrow out of it. But when you get these stem cells that are separated from that material, you have an abundance of stem cells. That can be anything. That can go anywhere. So they will inject those stem cells into a weak, sick heart. They'll put it into a dysfunctional pancreas, a failing kidney, with the idea that those stem cells... The beta cells cells of the pancreas is the newest thing with that new diabetic pump. Exactly. Yeah. And so what happens is the local growth factors of that unique tissue, heart, liver, kidney, uterus, whatever will stimulate that amount of harvested stem cells to become new healthy tissue in that particular organ. Now, environmental factors. Smoking is one of the big ones. Yeah, well, we know that. But other environmental factors, such as a terrible diet, uh, uh, solvents, uh, the the kinds of poisons, the, the fertilizers, herbicides, the kinds of stuff that we're... Uh, exposed to all the time now in the modern day world that they never got exposed to, you know, even a hundred years ago, a lot of these chemicals and things didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. And petroleum-based products, one of the reasons behind, I believe, the explosion of cancer in in the modern world, will trigger these stem cells, not the old mature cells. That theory has been disproven very well. It stimulates these new uh, stem cells, they go nuts, and they remain undifferentiated to a particular state, except they will pick up the characteristics a little bit of the host tissue, whether it's breast cancer, liver cancer, kidney cancer, because when those cells are looked at under a microscope, yes, that's a cancer cell from the kidney. Yes, that's a cancer cell. They have a, 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 a striking similarity. Besides the location where they find them. Right, the tumor in the lung, the tumor right. in the kidney. It's a giveaway. That, hmm. yeah. It's not a big toe cancer because it came <laughs> from the liver. However, they have the same exact proteinases uh, enzymes that, that they use to penetrate mm-hmm. through the basement membrane of the host tissue, liver, kidney, uterus, thyroid, whatever else, to get a blood supply. To eat. It has to have a blood supply. And as soon as it, but it's be, because it's you, 
It's your stem cells. It's using the same enzymes that the trophoblast, the, con- the, the conceived human ovum, uses the same uh, matrix so metalloproteinases. And it recognizes it, it says, as, come on in. Come on in, baby. I've got all the food you could want. Yeah. And it's sitting out there going, hmm, <laughs> She bought it. And, they, and it goes into the blood supply. It gets a blood supply. And it has the same genetic potential that the ovum, the human fertilized ovum does for rapid explosive growth. That embryonic. Now, why doesn't an embryo a human, fetal, the, the developing baby, why doesn't it become cancer? Well, it is kind of a cancer. Well, it's kind of a cancer yeah. in that it invaded the wall of the uterus the same way a cancer cell will invade the wall mm-hmm. of a uterus or any other basement organ. Mm-hmm. Not the soft cancers like lymphoma, myeloma, leukemia, not those, but the cancers of the hard organs. Well, you tell us how, drum roll. I was just coming to that. <laughs> And this is what Dr. Beard discovered back in the 1890s. When he was doing embryological studies, he first started off with invertebrates like worms and things like that, and then got into chicks, finally got into mammals. And he began to notice something remarkably similar from one mammal to the next, and that is the development of the pancreas inside the fetus. All of them, all mammals have a pancreas. Mm -hmm. Now, whether it's an herbivore, a carnivore, or like humans, omnivores, they have a pancreas that that produces digestive enzymes and insulin. And all animals, all mammals, not all animals, all mammals have the same insular response to the presence of glucose in the system, so they need insulin to make sure that the glucose gets into their bloodstream that they have enzymes that help regulate the breaking down of fats from triglycerides into diglycerides into free fatty acids, whatever else is necessary for their life. But they also have the same protein-digesting enzymes. Obviously, lions and tigers and bears have a lot more than sheep and deer and cattle. But the protolytic enzymes, and humans have these too. And the one thing that he noticed that was extremely troubling at the time, but just really sparked his imaginative research, was that at a certain point of fetal development before they're born, the pancreas starts releasing pancreatic enzymes into the bloodstream. Now, why? Because they're not eating. They're not eating sugar. Yeah. They're not eating fat. They're not eating meat. There is no food, protein, thank you, there is no food in the digestive system, none. So why would the pancreas come online? On the 56th day in humans, the little tiny babies. Now, the 56th day is just eight weeks, two months. I mean, it's still, it's barely halfway through the first trimester. Organs are forming like crazy. The pancreas is formed at this point, not completely, but enough that trypsin and chymotrypsin are being released from the pancreas into the digestive system. And there's no food present for it to digest. So either the pancreas is very stupid <laughs> and has arrived like the wedding caterer two months before the wedding <laughs> and is wondering where the wedding party yeah, where's is. Where's all the food? i got to digest all this food. Yeah. I have all these Who's going to eat all enzymes. this food I brought? Yeah. Right. Well, the pancreas is making these things and they're released into the bloodstream and... In a human embryo, 
or it's a fetus at this point. At this point of eight weeks of life, incredibly fast cellular replication that has built the placenta doesn't stop, but it greatly slows down. The brakes just... It just puts on the brakes. Now the baby grows. But that placenta, that invading trophoblastic trophoblastic tissue, suddenly that had the same rapid explosive growth that cancer cells do, the same way, the same enzymes, the same chemical processes, suddenly on the 56th day when these enzymes enter into the bloodstream of the fetus, the growth slows. Because you got the umbilical cord now, and you got a good connection, good connection to the mother. The mother's eating liver, you know, because they've listened to our podcast. She knows that's the best prenatal That's how she got pregnant in the first place, is she was eating the liver with the zinc so she can make the spark of life. There you go. So she knows that, you know, she'll give her baby liver as its first food after it's born. And so they have that umbilical cord, which is feeding the baby now. You don't need to keep eating into the uterus of the mother to get no, more. No, it's already anchored. Yeah, it's there. So, the, Matt, somebody's got to stop this continual eating. The placenta is anywhere from 8 to 10 inches wide and 2 inches thick. Mm-hmm. And it is the most, at this point in time, blood-rich uh, organ. Or not, it's not an organ. Well, I don't know if it's called an organ or not. Concentration of tissue in the body and that the baby's blood is coming within a cellular or two cellular division away from the mama's blood. Mm-hmm. And now that that's anchored mm-hmm. and set and everything is cool, don't need it you anymore. don't need it to grow to the size of a gigantic <laughs> well, extra you don't pepperoni need to cheese eat into, pizza. eat into the mother anymore. You know, this is interesting because I have a patient um, of our clinic who comes and sees me and she has not been able to get pregnant. She wanted to have one more child. She's only 35, five. She's, only, she's got four children. She wanted one more. And she had had eight or nine miscarriages. And she always lost them at eight weeks. So she just texted me. She, isn't that interesting, yeah, just what that, we're talking yeah. about? So she texted me. She's um, at eight weeks, and she has her 12th week um, exam. Uh, exam. And she's just crossing her fingers. We finally got her pregnant. It's, I think it's been a year and a half or something. Nutritionally speaking, I might add. Yes, <laughs> we didn't do anything else, honestly. And she um, did her whole gut reconditioning. Uh, she was in terrible shape. I don't know how she got the four babies out, but terrible shape. Anyway, she got pregnant. She's so excited. So I'll have to get back to you on the podcast to see if this baby makes yeah. it. So Well, eight weeks is a common time for the spontaneous abortion to take place. Yeah, I'm wondering if that has something to do with the pancreas well, not coming online. Well, I wonder if it does too, because if... The pancreas does not come online, and the chymotrypsin and trypsin enzymes are not released into the fetal bloodstream to, to slow down the growth. The, well, eventually, uh, essentially a malignancy, rapid, super rapid growth of this tissue. What do they call it? Well, choriocarcinoma. Choriocarcinoma. It's one of the most deadly forms of carcinoma a woman can have, cancer. It will kill her, and it will kill the baby. It's where the baby never stops eating into you. Well, the placenta. Placenta. The placenta turns into a cancerous tumor Mm -hmm. and consumes the mother, and the baby dies as a result. It rarely happens. Rarely happens, but it can happen. Now, why doesn't a cancer cell do that? What, on 56th day? On the 56th day of the life of the cancer. Because the <laughs> cancer is not a pancreatic great. organ releasing pancreatic enzymes. This was so stunning that when Dr. Beard began to publish this in- information that the transformation of the early cancer-like trophoblast 
into a mature placenta was such a remarkable biological feat and its comparison to the actual cancer cell, he believed that the two of them were not only alike in microscopic appearance, they were like an actual performance. But then, bing, <laughs> the light of knowledge hits him, and he witnessed every, every, not just humans, every mammalian species he studied the very day that this trophoblastic placenta, this fetal placenta, and it's, you know, different depending on the gestational period of pregnancy for the various mammals, it would, it would convert from this very, uh, a very poorly differentiated tissue into a very mature placenta. And this embryonic pancreas began synthesizing and secreting all of these digestive enzymes when there was no food present for them to digest. So as he's sitting there scratching his head, he says, hmm, this is very strange because that must have some other function. Well, contemporary uh, biologists at the same time, not just Dr. Beard, there were some contemporary biologists who said, yeah, that's right, the, uh, the, uh, the fetal pancreas does become active approximately when the trophoblast begins transforming into the mature placenta. There are other, I mean, he wasn't the only one to, you know, studying this kind of stuff. So he, when he announces what he called the trophoblastic theory of cancer in Lancet. 1902. 1902. Yeah, Lancet. The, explain what Lancet well, is. Well, Lancet, Lancet is probably the oldest of medical journals on the planet. Yeah, I mean, it's right next to the British Medical Journal as far as, yeah, it's like JAMA. And mm -hmm. It's like the New England Journal of Medicine. It's like the American Medical Association Journal. The, all these different kinds of medical journals that exist. Well, they were existing back then. And we get this idea, uh, erroneously, that somehow a hundred years ago, you know, they didn't know, you know, their brains from dirt when it came to cancer. But by 1900... There were institutions very much devoted to cancer research, like Sloan Kettering. I yeah. mean, anybody that knows anything about cancer knows about Sloan Kettering in New York. Well, they were already up and running in 1900 when Dr. Beard was doing his work at trying to unravel the biology of cancer. And, and by Beard's day, the investigators had already been able to correctly describe the histology, in other words, the understanding of, of a cancer cell, its behavior, and even the chromosomal aberrations, because they had very good microscopes in those days, all the different kinds of varieties, carcinogenic diseases. So they knew what cancer was. They just didn't know what caused it. And so when Dr. Beard came out with his trophoblastic theory of cancer, uh, this just blew the, blew the medical world to pieces because the, the medical journals of the day, and eventually about in 1906, the Journal of the American Medical Association and the British Medical Journal uh, also started talking about Dr. Beard's work. And what Dr. Beard did to prove, there was one particular case he did where he had these tumor-laden mice. I mean, these, these mice were just absolutely full of tumors. He took two of them and injected the tumor in the mouse with these proteolytic enzymes that were developing inside a fetal animal. Hmm. And he injected them right into the tumors, and he described the result that happened after that, that the mice were completely cleaned out or completely cured of the cancer. He injected extract of trypsin into two mice. Growing yeah, you're such cancers, at the same notes. yeah, the tumor completely regressed. Yes, 
Um, now, in the medical record, the, the Journal of the Medical Me- Record of 1906, there was a New York physician, Clarence Rice, and his article was Treatment of Cancer of the Larynx by Subcutaneous Injection of Pancreatic Extract. Trypsin. That's with, what it says With trypsin. There. Yeah. And the, hist- and the, the, the author of the article finally, finally finished by saying this was a remarkable cure. Yeah. And a month later, then 1906, a New York physician, Margaret Cleves, described two patients in the medical record. The first was a woman with recurrent large tumor of the tongue that stabilized on enzyme treatment. And at the time of that publication, the patient hadn't been on therapy very long, but seemed to be improving substantially. The, the, the other one was this fellow, and colorectal cancer was rather rare back then, but he had a case of this rectal can- carcinoma. He had tumor necrosis, I mean, the, the two, and then the tumor liquefaction as a result of the trypsin, trypsin injections. It completely sloughed off with it the trypsin injections. You zipped over the subtitle. I'm sorry to go back, but it's just so important. This Dr. Clarence Rice, um, The Treatment of Cancer of the Larynx, he had a subtitle called A Case of Growth Supposed to be Carcinoma Cured. Yes. Cured. Yes. And the reason I brought up Sloan Kettering and the understanding of cancer at the day is because when they saw a tumor and they took extract from it, a biopsy, mm-hmm. and looked at it under a microscope, oh, yeah, that's liver cancer. They oh, knew. yeah, that's kidney cancer. They knew what they were looking at. They knew back then. So when these medical journals published this stuff, they knew what they were publishing. I, I know we're going to break this, this uh, concept, Mary, that we're talking about today into two different podcasts. Yeah. And I want to kind of wrap this up here pretty quick before we go too much further into it. But a little bit of the history. Because as soon as medical journals were publishing Dr. Baird's work, there were clinics springing up all around here in America and mostly in the British Isles where Dr. Baird was located out of the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, Scotland, uh, using his methods. And some people were very, very successful with it. Some other doctors weren't because as just like today, yeah. anytime something new hits the news, there's 20 different companies out there that are saying, let's isolate that particular operative chemical and make a multi-level business. marketing business out of it. And Well, that's kind of what they did with the enzymes, the, the protolinic trypsin. And so with the enzymes, and the enzymes had to be extracted and prepared and in a certain proportion of, of fully active, precur- non-active precursor and fat content until the whole thing came together in the perfect cocktail to do the work. Yes, and so, well, go ahead. I'm just going to say they made some decisions that carried on for decades, if not an entire century, that you should take the fat out of the enzymes yes. that they extracted the out of the pancreas. The fat that was in the pancreas. They s- said you should take the fat out because they thought it was just an inert. Just a filler. Yeah, and it's so critical for these. And they also thought that the enzyme should be activated. And that's proven to be wrong, too. And they also thought you should inject the tumors with the enzymes, and that has been proven, that that's not the best way at all. I think it was right up until about the 1970s that that was still it you was. Know, out there on the edge, on the periphery of medical cancer treatment, but it was still being used until the a, the FDA came out and said, no more injectable they enzymes. They outlawed it. They, they outlawed yes. some, something yeah. that could have worked. That, that was working. Yes, it was Provided wasn't they working. got the right pancreatic enzyme extract. 
Well, there was people doing this everywhere, and they just said, we got to control this. And so it didn't work all the time because it wasn't the best way. Because the enzyme they, preparation was not the best enzyme that's preparation. That's right. There were a lot of different companies that were racing to the marketplace to sell these, and it was still in a very experimental stage back then. And, and they so outlawed it. Some of them had very effective enzymes. Some of them had enzymes that, enzymes that weren't all that effective, but it was because of the enzyme, not the concept behind the treatment. Well, kind of. The concept that the, you should inject right into the tumor was not a correct concept, but it worked. Well, it worked because it dissolved the tumor. Yes, but, but it, it isn't the best way... It's not the way well, they, our bodies work. Let's put it that well, way. Well, that's true. It's not the way our bodies work. Our bodies don't work by injections. <laughs> but it was believed for a long time that the hydrochloric acid in the stomach would destroy these enzymes before they could get into the intestine, absorbed into the bloodstream, and get to the tumor and dissolve the tumor. But that's not true. But several studies, several published medical studies have shown that these enzymes taken orally remain inert yeah. in hydrochloric acid in the stomach. The hydrochloric acid, even though they're made out of proteins, are untouched by the hydrochloric yeah, there's acid a in the stomach. Yeah, there's this couple of guys that studied it for 24 years and finally published their findings that the enzymes are not hurt by the stomach, the stomach acids. Well, above and beyond the realities of all the scientific politics that go on out there, I suspect it was the poor quality enzyme products that did much to undermine Dr. Beard's treatment. Yeah, so they had and people that got better and people that didn't. And, you know, the, the lay well, person down the street was right. doing this. And yes. they just said, no, this is a medical procedure. So they outlawed injectable well, enzymes. Well, that's not till the 1970s. Right. Back in the 1910s and the 1911s oh, and the 1920s. This was when Madame Curie showed up. And mm -hmm. we've talked about we've her talked in about earlier that. podcasts with her totally non-toxic, non-dangerous, <laughs> perfectly 100% cancer-killing x-rays. And we tell the story in other podcasts. We don't, need to re we don't need to go into repeating that because we're pretty lengthy right now in this podcast. No, but here's, here's what it comes down to. You have always had in your body the perfect drug. I want a new drug, that type of thing. For cancer, we're always trying to find a drug, a chemotherapy. Let's or something. say the perfect answer for cancer, not a drug, because these enzymes aren't drugs. No, I know, but that's what we've been looking for right. in med medical that, that science. That magic bullet. That magic bullet that goes in and targets just the cancer cells and leaves healthy tissue alone. Right. That's what we wish chemotherapy did, but of course it doesn't. But and chemotherapy does work on about four I, different cancers. I got to interrupt you for a second. That's okay. right. Chemotherapy works on four or five cancers. It won't work on the rest. But this is why the whole new push in cancer is immunotherapy now because they know chemo doesn't work. Right. They know radiation the doesn't system. work. Yeah. They know surgical doesn't work because it comes back even after they the tumor's been removed. They don't fix the reason for the cancer. Exactly. Yeah. And so now they're going after immunotherapy to build the immune system because they know your immune system is the first line of defense for cancer. So that's where all the research is going to now. Not how to get people to eat correctly. Or build their immune system. Or to build their immune correctly, system, not, but to find drugs yeah, that will boost the immune And they're using stem response. cells, and they're putting stem cells in your body. Instead yep. of asking the question, why aren't we producing healthy stem cells? What happened to the beta cells in our pancreas that produces insulin? Why do I have to have stem cells injected into my pancreas? Yeah, what's wrong with my stem what's cells? What's wrong with my stem cells? Yeah, what yeah. happened? They so that's, that's what we're here for. You got the forbidden doctor inside of you. You can fix this. So 
the magic pill that we've all been wanting, the magic drug to kill cancer, is inside of your body. It's in your pancreas. So we need to strengthen the pancreas. We need to eat the foods that will do that. And that is the protolytic enzyme your pancreas produces to digest food and scour the body for mutated stem cells. And that is the trypsin that cuts off that malignant that's eating away at healthy tissue. And then the chymotrypsin that comes in and liquefies or liquefication of the tumor cells. This is why uh, we produced the uh, long-life energy enzymes. The reason why we produced that actually was for me because I needed some help with my pancreas at one time because a, an MRI exam of my uh, abdomen when I had some bad kidney stone problems showed that I had some severe pancreatic problems, and I looked for something to help build the pancreas without me having to you know, eat a pound of pancreas every day. Which would be okay. Which, but. yeah, well, yeah, as long as you, as long as you put on enough ketchup, <laughs> then it would probably work. But I um, eat pancreas. We're, we're now having the sweet meats. They're the good. sweet meats. Or you can just. But we're now having patients telling us, "Hey, uh, I was, I thought I was dying here a month ago." I'd gone yellow, jaundiced, my organs are starting to shut down. We, last... we talked about this in the last podcast. Mm-hmm. And now they're claiming that their cancer's gone. Now, there weren't extensive medical tests before. There were not extensive medical tests afterwards. These, these are based on testimonials of the patients themselves. Well, what it does is it supports the structure and the function of your pancreas and those beta cells, if you want to call it that, specifically. But it enables you to make your own Well, you have your own stem cells, but we want them to be healthy. We don't want them to mutate. So that's what the Lee enzyme does. It also helps with additional proteolytic enzymes in your diet. So not only do you digest your food better if you take the Lee enzymes on with while you eat. Yeah. But if you take them on an empty stomach. They get in the bloodstream. Yeah, just, just like, like a the fifty sixth day fetus. Of the baby. Which stops the trophoblastic growth. To, from a trophoblast to a placenta. Just almost miraculously this happens. This is, this is absolutely fascinating information. So, But it smacks up against a multi-billion dollar cancer industry. Yeah. And they want very, very expensive treatments. Yeah. Not something as simple as Dr. Baird's ideas of The most protected industry in the world is the cancer industry. So 20-second recap... Jack, what is, just what is cancer? Cancer, and it is the center of so much research right now, is these undifferentiated stem cells, itty, itty, bitty, teeny little cells that just have an explosive growth. They have explosive, Potential. They have a explosive growth anyway to become a new heart cell. Or mm-hmm. to be, and look at the walls of your intestines that, that, that are rubbed off every five days. The stem cells in the gut are creating new um, cells for the walls of the intestines constantly. Well, what happens when these stem cells go crazy? Well, They have this explosive growth. They do not fully differentiate into the host tissue. They do not become a healthy colon tissue. So if you have a healthy pancreas and it's scouring the body with these enzymes, trypsin and chymotrypsin, it will get rid of that, and it does for years and years and years and years. That's why the experts tell us we can experience five, six, seven bouts of cancer in a lifetime without us ever knowing about it. But when those cancer cells are present, your pancreas starts dumping 
trypsin and chemotrypsin into the bloodstream. Your immune system comes alive and goes alert and sends in the warriors. And a combination of all those actions, the cancer never gets a foothold. It shows up, it gets destroyed, it's over with. Yeah. So if it has happened in you, I just got a phone a text from a patient that her sister-in-law has just come down with cancer. Very sad. Um, we've been through this over and over and over again. And so, of course, we recommended she listen to her doctor and she needs some good nutritional support. And yes. that's what we could that, offer we'll her. start with this. Okay. So what I did tell her to do was to go to um, ForbiddenDoctor.com slash survey. Oh, yes. And fill out our symptom survey. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. Answer a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> And for now, that we are offering it for free, and it's we will offer you a personalized supplement protocol based on your symptoms from that symptom survey. And for right now, it's still offered at no charge to our podcast listeners. You can't find it, the symptom survey on our website yet, but if you go to ForbiddenDoctor.com slash survey, don't forget the .com part, ForbiddenDoctor.com slash survey, then we will... And because Making. it's Mary and I who are putting these together, no one sees your no one sees your results except our nutritional staff and Mary or myself. And Fully if you have already filled out a survey by our offer from a previous podcast, and <laughs> you haven't got the results yet, we're behind. We're behind. Yeah. And it's Mary and I that make the final decision what needs to go into this protocol. We're going to send back to you. And it and this is not a blanket thing. Not, we don't think everybody out there has brown hair and wears size nine shoes. We individualize this, so it takes a little bit longer. Be patient with us. You'll get your results. Yep. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the modern-day history with uh, Dr. Morse, Dr. Kelly, Dr. Gonzalez, where they resurrected the work of Dr. Beard and their incredible testimonials. They're Just some docu- of the most documented. Dr- medically Meticulously, people live in 20, 30 years past a diagnosis of terminal cancer. Yeah. That'll be next week. Next week. We'll see you then. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Forbidden Doctor podcast with Dr. Jack and Mary Stockwell. It's our pleasure to join you on your health revolution and look forward to our quest for health together. Join us again next week for more health secrets and forbidden truths about self-healing. Until then, visit ForbiddenDoctor.com and enter your email to receive a special coupon for the Forbidden Doctor Special Scientific Formula, our long-life energy enzymes. This custom-made one-capsule supplement is created from the most concentrated energy-stimulating enzymes. For more information, be sure to head over to ForbiddenDoctor.com. These podcasts are provided for information only. The previous statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Nothing that was said is intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.